Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the place where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are presenting yet another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. Let's find the silver linings in this pandemic together. Uh, Normally, we're heard in the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. For our return performance, we today have Eustace Fernandez with an update, not only from the intensive care unit where he's taking care of COVID pneumonia patients, but today we're going to cover uh, what is it that the virus is doing to the body. We're going to try to do it in a way that anybody, even a dermatologist, can understand. So, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, philosopher, theologian, pulmonologist, and critical care physician, father of five, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Well, thanks for having me, and that's quite a mouthful. (laughs) It is. Don't ask me to try to say it again. I'm sure I would trip and fall. So one thing that we doctor types talk about, we like using multisyllabic words like pathophysiology, which mainly refers to what is going on in the body when a certain disease is happening. Here the disease is an infection. So I thought we would kind of use your great knowledge about this to to talk about what is this little submicroscopic invader doing to the body? So very simply speaking, Eustace, how does the virus get into our bodies? Well, it is a simple question, but I don't think we know the answer yet, which is mm. astonishing. You know, we're, we're many months into this now, and it seems with each day there's a new controversy, a new question as to very simple things like how is the virus spread? When is a patient most uh, infectious to his neighbor? Um, what is the most common presenting symptom. So when we talk about how the virus is transmitted, we, we assume that it's through a respiratory mechanism. Now, there are two main pathways for this. One is what we call a droplet. So that means that one coughs, um, the uh, virus is carried in respiratory secretion. So in mucus, um, in respiratory droplets, which are which are sort of waterborne and carried into your neighbor when you cough um, near them. Now, there also is some concern that this virus may be aerosolized, which means that it is in its smallest particular form. So in its smallest form is still transmissible. So just hanging in the air kind of is a myth. Just hanging in the air just hanging in the air. And for how long, we don't know. How long it lives on surfaces, we don't know. And we also make a lot of uh, talk about um, how long it lives on surfaces. The fact that you can detect the virus on a surface does not mean that it can infect a person. So you may detect it without it actually being infectious. So our listeners may remember, Tom, when we had Dr. Paul Carson, he was talking about the phenomenon that it's detectable in human stool but no one has proven if that means it could be spread in that way. And that was part of the controversy with the toilet seats. But uh, Eustace, right. you make a great, a great point. It, just because we can find it doesn't mean it's necessarily infectious, does it? No. And, and what we know from people who are really getting sick with it is that the severity of illness seems to correlate with the amount of virus exposure you have or the bolus or the the quantity of virus you're exposed to. So for example, I do a procedure called bronchoscopy where I'm directly entering the airway. That's a high risk procedure. Um, I put down a breathing tube in the intensive care unit in a patient who is struggling to breathe. If that patient coughs, you can imagine that there's a high load of virus that will be potentially transmitted to me. So the type of protective equipment I wear when I'm doing those kinds of procedures is different than if I'm uh, visiting with someone who is, who's not in that state or doesn't require those procedures. So Eustace, for our listeners, what are other common uh, illnesses that are spread like this? So in terms of the most common in terms of spreading through the droplet are things like the common cold or influenza. Mm. Um, the uh, virus that's very closely associated with um, with uh, COVID-19, which is SARS, uh, was initially thought to be aerosol-borne, but now we uh, is is classified as a droplet spread. 
Um, in terms of things that are aerosolized, the most common one worldwide is probably tuberculosis. Uh, so that's something where we're, we are very aware that it is in the air. It can um, be highly infectious, highly contagious. But it's probably important to point out for listeners that this is not a new process that just came on the scene with the coronavirus. We've been very knowledgeable and very experienced about both aerosolized and droplet-based disease spread, because I think sometimes some of the panic, people can feel like it's just going to come get me, even if I'm sitting in the closet. Uh, and that doesn't happen, does it? No, no, it, it doesn't. And, and you know, there are other places around the world that have um, deep sort of medical psychological scars from their previous experiences. So, you know, you think about Hong Kong with, um, with SARS or uh, um, other parts of the world with MERS-CoV or other areas with the swine flu. And they have a um, societal cultural um, scar that makes them in some ways more prepared, more sensitive, and more acutely aware that this isn't something new, but they sort of fall into these practices again, like this is what we need to do in this particular situation. Well, let's follow uh, the virus from the air or from a surface. How does it get into the body besides uh, if you happen to inhale it when someone coughs? Is, isn't right. it like, aren't the fingers like some of the most important transmitters of disease right right um we think that the fingers and mucosal surfaces so mucosal surfaces are things like the inside lining of your mouth or your nose and or your so, eyelids like we rub or your our eyes eyelids. and and that's why there's been such an emphasis on good hand hygiene washing your hands like crazy using hand sanitizer when uh when you need to not touching your face, not touching your eyes, not putting your fingers in your mouth or nose and and you know these are all kind of good hygienic habits to begin with in season or out of season and and sometimes and some some places are seeing um, change in social behaviors just centering around these very simple practices uh, which they think are are largely accountable um, for reduction in cases of COVID-19. So you take a place like Sweden which did not uh, shut down their economy, did not um, shut down restaurants, limited gatherings to 50, did not close schools, but emphasized socially, don't touch your face, wash your hands, making these kinds of instructions highly, um, highly suggested, uh, not mandated, but highly suggested. And it, it sort of has caused a, a shift in, in, in the culture. So Eustace, that's how uh, we acquire, you might say, the virus through the mucous membranes and such. But what happens at that point? Where does it go and how does it go? Well, it's a complicated and in some ways scary story. Um, there are receptors in the body called ACE2, which stands for angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And these receptors appear all over the body in almost every solid organ. And this is the port of entry for the COVID-19 virus. So, so these the mucosal membranes have these ACE2 receptors. That's correct. So you find it in mucosal membranes, you find it throughout the lung, you find it in the kidneys, in the liver, you find it throughout the body, in the nervous system. There was also a study published in The Lancet on April 20th that looked at autopsy specimens from COVID-19 patients and found these ACE2 receptors also in the blood vessels of all of these solid organs. So it's not just the organ tissue itself, but also the blood vessels that supply the, uh, these vital organs. Well, so that brings up... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say a lot of our astute listeners are probably saying to themselves, wait a minute, I take a blood pressure medicine that's called an ACE inhibitor. Help us connect those dots. Right. So this is a controversial area. Mm -hmm. So the ACE inhibitor um, works to lower blood pressure. And the way it works is that there's a complicated system called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that helps regulate blood pressure. By taking an ACE inhibitor, you prevent that cascade from happening and theoretically lower the blood pressure. Now, when 
you block the ACE inhibitor, uh, when you block the angiotensin converting enzyme pathway, you lower blood pressure, but some people think that it makes ACE2 levels go up. Mm. So in theory, there might be a danger of making yourself more infected with SARS because you have more of these ACE2 inhibitors. The other side of that coin is that we know that ACE2 helps reduce inflammation in the body, particularly in the lung. So there was a uh, paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine on April 23rd, where the authors describe how though the COVID-19 enters the body through the ACE2 receptors, as soon as it enters the body, ACE2 receptors ACE2 actually drops. Yes. So it's protection for the lung, for example. So ACE2 may actually protect the lung. That goes away because ACE2 levels start to drop in that environment. And something I've read, Eustace, is that with the ACE inhibitors, there's a different, like there's ACE1 or just the plain ACE that they work through and that they don't necessarily work through ACE2. Is that correct? Right. So the, the data is in no way definitive on what effect ACE inhibitors have, if any, on ACE2 levels. Uh, so so Eustace, this, what, what's the connection with high blood pressure being such a, appears to be such a great risk factor for patients that, that interact with the virus? Right. I mean, that's a common question because you would expect that the lungs are the most vulnerable organism. I mean, the most vulnerable organ in the body. And why aren't the people with significant lung disease being the people most significantly affected? And I believe that this has more to do with just blood pressure, but probably more so with what we call the metabolic syndrome or syndrome X, which is this combination of diabetes, high blood pressure, central or truncal obesity. So that means um, people who are overweight and and have a fat distribution that looks more like a pear, um, makes their body look more like a a pear. And we see in almost every study that these factors, in addition to age and other comorbidities, is associated with death. And it may be, in fact, that these uh, patients with this metabolic syndrome have more ACE2 floating around and the Mm -hmm. virus becomes more avid. There's also uh, been a paper published, I think, again in The Lancet, where they looked at what happens when uh, sugar is bound to ACE2. Hmm. And it turns out that at least in laboratory studies, when sugar is bound to ACE2, the virus has much more of a heyday, can enter the body more readily and enter uh, the system much more easily. So that would suggest that the patients that we are seeing with high blood pressure, poorly controlled obesity, are probably more vulnerable. Mm. So the question is, is sugar comfort food for coronavirus? (laughs) We don't know with certainty. Uh, We can say, look at other disease processes, and know that excess of sugar is bad in terms of uh, control of infection. So you can look at things like uh, patients who have had cardiovascular surgery. If they have well-controlled blood sugars, the incidence of infection at their surgical site is almost zero. Mm. Um, We know that in patients who are medically sick, it's not always the case. Sometimes trying to control uh, blood sugar too closely uh, creates a bad outcome through hypoglycemia or low blood sugars. But certainly giving a bacteria or a virus simple sugar to grow in is probably not a great idea. So Eustace, walk us through the anatomy now. So the virus enters, you know, maybe via mouth, nose, or eyes. It makes it into sort of the upper airways. And then the bad stuff starts happening, doesn't it? Walk us through that. Or can the bad stuff be prevented at this point? mm. It is unclear whether the bad stuff can be presented at this point. There are obviously some people who believe that combinations of drugs like azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine um, can blunt the effect. Um, there are people in uh, you know, one of my uh, former mentors, uh, Dr. Paul Merrick, um, 
he suggests that high doses of, of vitamins, such as uh, vitamin C and thiamine and zinc, and even slow-release melatonin, may in fact uh, blunt the effect of the virus. Uh, this is in no way uh, been definitively proven, but there are people who are thinking about ways to blunt the effect. So once it enters the body, there are a couple different ways in which it can cause really detrimental harm. The first, and I think we've talked about it before, is this idea of the cytokine storm. So the virus comes in, does its damage, and then you have this exuberant or excessive response of the human immune system. Eustace, before that, that happens, are there any patients where the virus just stays in the upper airways like a common cold and doesn't go down into the lower airways? Or don't we know? Well, I think we don't know with certainty what that number is, but we, we know that there are a vast number of minimally symptomatic or right. asymptomatic carriers people who have had it. So you look at the state of New York, for example, they have rolled out anti aggressive antibody testing. Yes. And within the state of New York, about 15% of patients, uh, of people tested, not exactly patients, but random people tested positive. That number isn't consistent with the numbers that are seeking medical attention. So you said within, 15%? Right. And which within, is higher than any other state, because I've seen three to four and a half percent in other states. Right. Or two to four and, and a half. With, within uh, Governor Cuomo yesterday said um, that within New York City, that number is 20%. Wow. So that takes the fatality rate, if you're just talking about New York, from what we thought it was about four or 5% down to about 0.6, which is still much deadlier than seasonal influenza. Right. But we don't know how many asymptomatic people there are out there um, who have had the condition. You know, this is um, a confusing very, phenomenon, isn't it, from a from a it, public health standpoint? And we've it is we've it been is. over so this they, a few times. This idea that the more I test, the more disease we find, and then the more disease we find, we're going to attribute a death rate to the disease. And it can be very confusing because in Indiana, we don't test as much as they're testing in the state of New York, and then it isn't even uniform across the state of New York compared to New York City to rural upstate New York. But that statistical phenomenon, I think, for our listeners can get very confusing. Right. So they tested uh, prisoners in a uh, prison in, in Ohio and found that 73% were positive. 73? Wow. Right. And, and so the question becomes, how many of these people are actually sick? What uh, mechanism by which were they tested? How did they handle that from a public health standpoint? Uh, how sick did they get if they did get sick? So we don't really have clear-cut answers um, to many of these questions. So in, in answer to your question, Tom, I think there probably are a lot of people where the virus is either minimally symptomatic or, or entirely asymptomatic, and we just don't know. Got it. So then the virus gets down lower in the lungs, and is that when this cytokine, cytokine storm starts? Yes. So what we see is elevation in blood tests that we use to check for various uh, states that are inflammatory, right? So we, it tells us that the immune system has kicked up. And when it's revved up like that, um, I believe you probably have a pretty limited window of time to address that and uh, tamp down the immune system. And how do you do that? So um, some people have advocated using steroids. Now, steroids tamp down the immune system, but there is concern that they may also increase the burden of virus within the body. Mm. There are very specific uh, treatments, such as um, Actemra, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. Interleukin-6 is very prominent in this cytokine storm. So Actemra, um, prevents interleukin-6 from doing its thing, so may blunt that inflammatory response. And then the one that's gotten a lot of press lately is remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug, so it may directly reduce the, um, the uh, viral load 
and may blunt the cytokine storm by, by limiting viral exposure. Now, in addition to the cytokine storm, uh, there's this pathway we talked about a little, a little while ago about where it actually affects the blood vessels. And what we're finding is that many of these patients at autopsy or even in, you know, when they're very critically ill have uh, blood clots in the lungs, at the, at the very small blood vessel level, sometimes at the large blood vessel level. Sometimes they present with uh, stroke-like symptoms or with heart disease. And okay. this you, probably you, has... You've covered a ton of stuff. Let's try to break it down for listeners. It's all really good. So first of all, the cytokine storm in the lungs, when the lung, is the damage to the lung caused by the virus or is it caused by the lung's response to the virus? It's probably a combination of both. Early on in the disease, we think that it is the actual viral load and direct injury of the lung by the virus. Later on, as the immune system seems to get revved up, it seems to be a problem where the immune system can't regulate itself. It can't tell friend from foe and just sort of indiscriminately damages um, everything in sight. And that's where we see these various phases of illness. So we see an early phase and then a later phase where uh, the patient is on the arc of their illness. They may require a ventilator. And then once they're on the ventilator, that period of time um, is a long period of time to get the immune system tamped down and begin to work on rehabilitating the whole patient. And Eustace, something we've talked about in the past, well, actually first, so the alveoli, the little sacs of air in the lungs fill with gunk, with pus, with this stew or soup. How do you get that out of there? Well, hopefully it degrades over time there is a certain percentage of that lung where you don't get it out of there. And the lung becomes what we call fibrosed uh, or scarred. And what percentage of the lung heals normally, heals abnormally, but is still functional and or becomes just permanent scar that's non-functional lung is variable from patient to patient. There are strategies that we use with the ventilator, which include giving smaller breath sizes to minimize the amount of stretch on those little air sacs and certain things we do with the ventilator that allow the patient's lung to have the best chance at recovery. There is some concern that giving very high concentrations of oxygen. So the air you and I breathe, for example, is 21% oxygen. There is some concern that giving high doses of oxygen can actually injure the lung as well. So in my patients that I've taken care of, I tolerate them having a little bit lower oxygen level if it means I'm putting less oxygen into the body. So Eustace, another thing with lung disease is it's been demonstrated that chronic lung disease is a risk factor for worse outcomes, but not asthma. Why do you think there's this difference? I don't know. I don't think we know with certainty. Asthma is, for the most part, a disease that is of dysregulated immunity. So they may not be coming to the illness with a normal immune response to begin with. So that may in some way be protective oh. uh, in asthmatic patients. So less cytokine storm. Maybe, maybe. Um, that's purely conjecture. The, the other thing is that uh, asthmatic patients tend to be a little bit younger, tend to carry fewer comorbidities. So it may be related to who actually has asthma versus who has COPD or emphysema. So a patient with COPD and emphysema probably is going to be a little bit older. There may have an accompanying condition such as heart disease or high blood pressure. Well, what do all those things have in common? They're all linked to tobacco smoke. Mm. Uh, so maybe it's those things that kind of 
um, tease out the patients who are at higher risk. So tobacco is uh, a, apparently a risk factor, is it not? Yes. I mean, I think it's, it's a risk factor for um, bad outcomes in pretty much any disease that one uh, considers. And, in, and this one is really no different. Um, particularly in the rehabilitation phase, if someone comes to a serious medical illness like COVID-19 that affects the lung primarily, and they also have advanced lung disease like COPD, the likelihood that they're going to have a good outcome in terms of survival or functionally is certainly lower than someone who enters the disease with relatively normal lung function. Now, our friend Paul Carson, public health doc up in uh, North Dakota, said that one thing that really scared him that he's learned is that many of these patients with COVID feel like they're breathing normally, but if you put a pulse oximeter on them to see the level of oxygen in their blood, it's dangerously low, and then they may even pass out, but never having experienced a hunger for air. Have you seen that or heard about that? We've seen it. Yeah, we've seen patients who look perfectly comfortable, perfectly comfortable with oxygen saturations that can be very detrimental um, to other higher organ system function. And so our initial response, I think, was one of fear and saying, oh my gosh, we've got to put this patient on the ventilator. As we gain more experience looking after these patients, I think we're willing to tolerate a lower oxygen level and try other things like putting them on their belly, which we call proning, or giving them different ways of receiving oxygen, such as something we call a non-rebreather mask where they're breathing oxygen through a bag or something called a high flow nasal cannula where they can get a high percentage of oxygen at a high flow in terms of liters per minute without having to go on the ventilator. And we follow them very closely for signs and symptoms of respiratory muscle fatigue. Many of these patients, if you can support them through the initial illness without putting them on the ventilator, are probably going to do okay. Mm. It's this idea of letting people be, uh, giving them permission to have low oxygen levels. And, and what looking is at low? The you know, what's so, normal, what's low? So normally, if we look at what uh, studies have defined, you begin doing damage to the body when your oxygen levels are around 88% or lower. That's when, you know, I see a patient in my office and they qualify for oxygen. That number 88% is tied to a number of bad things happening in the body. But we've seen patients who I, I've permitted them to range in the 80-ish range. 80 okay. to 85, mm. and they're fully awake and alert. Um, some of these patients are even on ventilators, and they're ranging in the 80 to 85 range and perfectly comfortable, and, um, and I'm willing to let that ride because in the patient who's not on a ventilator, the consequences of putting them on a ventilator is much, much darker than waiting and watching them closely for signs of organ, other organ system failure, fatigue in their breathing, alteration in their brain function. So I think the way we're thinking about this is, is beginning to change. So do patients need to wear pulse oximeters more often, you think, or should they just be treated mainly by symptoms? So if we're talking about outpatients, because yes, pulse outpatients. oximeters, you can go to you know, Walmart and buy a pulse oximeter. Exactly. Uh, can be, can be your friend or foe. And sometimes, you know, we'll get calls from patients who walked a flight of stairs and their pulse oximeter went from 95% to 93% and they're very concerned. And what I would, what I tell my patients is to check your pulse oximeter if you feel different, if you have symptoms and we can follow that and that can be very useful. But on, from a patient who's at home, and doing just fine, um, checking the pulse oximeter every so often will probably only raise anxiety levels. Now in the hospital, it's really important to check their pulse oximeter um, 
because then we, we know when we're hitting points where we need to watch them a little closer, where we may change the way we deliver oxygen to them, where we may choose to prone them to try and drive their oxygen levels up. So in, in, the, hosp in the hospital versus out of the hospital is very different. Well, let's move organs. How could we ever grow tired of the lungs? Um, yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> but maybe there are some other organs we should think about. You know, we hear a lot about the heart and the kidneys as big organ systems, so to speak, that are also COVID-related. What happens there and, and how does it work? So I think, again, this comes down to does this virus affect the blood vessels? Does it affect the clotting systems in the body. So when it, within the heart, there are patients who are developing uh, syndromes where they present with two different flavors. One is, is basically a, a heart attack related to uh, either clot in one of the blood vessels that supplies the heart or stress by low oxygen levels, high work of breathing that causes the muscle of the heart to be kind of starved. And we call that a demand ischemia relationship or the heart can't keep up with the demand for oxygen and therefore the heart muscle begins to suffer and, and you have a heart attack syndrome. Mm. There is a second pathway, which is where the virus directly affects the heart muscle. And we call this condition myocarditis. Mm. And what it means is that the virus is directly causing uh, damage and inflammation in the heart. And this has a high correlation with a poor outcome. So the presence of uh, heart muscle damage um, or a heart attack is a, is a very, very serious uh, problem. And we need to take those patients um, as a high-risk group within an already high-risk group um, and pay attention to their heart. And we do this by looking at the heart with ultrasound, by making sure if they need blood thinners that they get them, and again, usual good supportive care. So do you think that the virus is being transported through the bloodstream to get to these other organs? I think that there's reasonable evidence that that's happening. You know, the other thing that can certainly damage other organ systems is, is the cytokine storm. Because though the cytokine storm manifests itself primarily with injury to the lung, it certainly can cause damage in other vital organs. So if you look at the blood profiles of patients who have, are experiencing cytokine storm, you might see evidence of, uh, of muscle damage heart muscle and otherwise. You might see that the liver is affected and that the enzymes that we monitor in, in the liver are going up. Um, and kidney function, again, uh, is, uh, is affected and, and the kidneys are damaged by that cascade of inflammation that is out of control. Eustace, you've mentioned several times blood clot problems. I've seen this more and more in the news the last week in different publications. How scary is that? And because of the blood clots, are you putting patients in the ICU on anticoagulants to prevent blood clots? So I think anyone who is critically ill is at higher risk for a blood clot. Mm -hmm. Now, we normally give patients uh, medication called heparin or Lovenox to prevent blood clots. And this is usually an injection given in the belly. We call that dose prophylaxis. So we're trying to prevent a blood clot. All COVID-19 patients should have this uh, medication unless they have an absolute reason to not have it. So that is a preventative measure. And Beyond that, that, from the beginning, or is this? We were doing that from the beginning because it's just it's, because again, of all your ICU patients. That's a routine, right? It's just part of good supportive care. Got it. Now there are uh, blood levels we track. We track a substance called D-dimer. It's a blood test. And that test, among others, can tell us whether or not the patient's coagulation cascade is ramped up. So whether their ability to form clots in places you don't want them is vastly increased. So different institutions are recommending we track that level. 
in the blood, the D-dimer. And if it uh, goes up two times or three times the upper limit of normal, we strongly consider putting them on blood thinners that really thin the blood as if you already have a blood clot. Mm -hmm. And there are anecdotal reports that this is making a difference. We don't know with certainty what the right level is and when we should thin. If we find a blood clot in the body, then for sure we're going to put them on blood thinners that work throughout the whole system and, and, and are much stronger than the preventative doses we give. So Eustace, we've, we've, we've touched on the lungs, the heart, the kidneys. Let's think about the brain. Well, we, we didn't also... get the kidneys yet. You asked, oh. but I, I interrupted with the question about the clotting. So <laughs> back to Chris's question. We Let's want to not know... skip the poor kidneys. No, the little beans. Right. So the kidneys, again, are probably an innocent uh, bystander in the inflammatory cascade. And again, uh, in the Lancet study that I referenced earlier, you find these ACE2 uh, molecule in the blood vessels that line the kidney. The kidney is an incredibly vascular um, structure. Uh, so there are a lot of blood vessels going into the kidneys. And the fact that you may be damaging the kidneys by multiple pathways is probably true. So there may be some direct binding of the virus within the blood vessels of the kidneys that causes damage. There may be damage to the kidneys, which I think is probably the lion's share of it caused by this cytokine storm. And then there is probably damage to the kidneys because when these patients get really sick and their blood pressure begins to drop, we give them medications that make the blood vessels constrict, thereby reducing blood flow to the kidneys and damaging the kidneys that way. So there are probably multiple mechanisms whereby the kidneys are damaged. All right. So now let's move to the brain. Uh, <laughs> there, there is evidence that, that it has a, a brain component. And we've heard recently, I think, that patients could present with nothing more than uh, an altered sense of smell um, as their presenting symptom. Uh, what's happening there? So this is um, kind of a scary thing because a lot of us worry about the neurologic function of our patients, particularly in the intensive care unit. But there was a report out of New York yesterday of a, an uptick in young patients with minimal COVID symptoms who are presenting with clot in the brain, which we call stroke. So there's that. There is concern that also, it may affect the nerve fibers that um, supply the whole body. And there are case reports, at least, of a uh, condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a condition, a syndrome that causes ascending paralysis. So what that means is that you gradually lose strength beginning in the, in the feet and ascending up the body to the point where it affects the, the um, nerve fibers that are necessary to continue to breathe and things like that. And that might be another pathway whereby one requires a ventilator. We worry about the neurologic system, particularly during these periods of time where oxygen levels are low. Are we causing uh, permanent or long-term uh, brain injury by globally depriving the brain of oxygen. So it's, then, probably, it's probably fair to say, I guess, for listeners that the absence of shortness of breath doesn't necessarily mean that you're not ill with COVID virus. Is that, is that fair? That is fair. That is fair. And at that point, we're balancing risk. What is the risk to the patient of putting him on a ventilator versus letting him ride for a little while and observing? Mm. And then You've the last thing I should mention from times, a, a, What are the risks of ventilator, Eustace? Yeah, so, so the risks of the ventilator, and, and that's a nice segue into, we're talking about neurologic complications, is the profound weakness uh, that occurs in patients who are placed on ventilators. So you begin to lose muscle mass probably within uh, 24 to 36 hours of being on a ventilator uh, oh. because of immobilization, because the body is under so much stress that it's just chewing up all the calories and protein stores in the body just trying to stay alive. And so that in and of itself, being on a ventilator, being immobilized, being profoundly ill, causes muscular weakness and neuromuscular weakness. Additionally, the medications we give, sedation, 
paralyzing medications, sometimes in combination with steroids, can cause long-term muscle weakness, which we call critical illness polyneuropathy or, or critical illness myopathy, which can lead to profound muscle weakness or inability to breathe after you're through the initial illness. Wow. So, so, and then there's the last bit, which if we are not protective in the way we deliver breaths to the lungs, so if we give them very large breaths, that puts an abnormal amount of stress, uh, stress and stretch on the air sacs and damages them. We call that ventilator-associated lung injury. Uh, and that can lead to a process where the lung, when it's trying to heal, heals really abnormally and heals back to scar. And those patients seem to always have a worse outcome. So there are many ways in which you can hurt a patient with a ventilator. Sometimes we get a false sense of security because at least we can make the numbers look right. We have a, a secure airway. We have lots of things in place that we feel like we can control them. But the ventilator is not a benign instrument. And I read uh, yesterday that in New York City, they were reporting that nine out of 10 patients who went on a ventilator for COVID ended up dying. Have you seen that? And how do you explain such a high fatality rate? Okay, so... Um, short answer is no. We, we have not seen that. Um, the fatality rate is high, but I don't think it's 9 out of 10. When we look at that published report um, that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, they looked at 5,700 patients across 12 hospitals. They only analyzed the patients who were no longer hospitalized. So they took patients who were discharged home or passed away or discharged to a rehab facility. Now, we know, and they, and they looked over about a month or so. So we know that of those 5,700 patients, they included about 2,600 in the study. Well, the other patients were still in the hospital. So we don't know what their outcomes were. So it skews that number higher towards patients who are no longer in the hospital because they died. Um, and it doesn't say anything about the patients who are still there and still on the ventilator, still receiving care. Now, we know when a patient goes on the ventilator that it's a long-haul illness. It might take about 21 days before they begin to turn the corner. And so there's probably a, a swath of patients when this data was collected who are still in the hospital, still on the ventilator, still destined to survive, but not counted in the study. Oh, sure. That's an excellent example of how you can lie with statistics. Right. And, and JAMA actually today um, uh, put out a, an electronic correction uh, or clarification to that article. And, and importantly to point out, from no malice of intent, Correct. it's just we're, we're in the crazy business of interpreting statistics before the, the ink has begun to dry on the paper. Um, with things changing on a daily basis, but it can be changing on a daily basis and the data uh, collection. So the quality of these studies is not something that we would expect, you know, a year ago or two years ago when they are rigorously examined mm. and held to very high standards. Right now, uh, we're just trying to get our arms around the beginnings of this. And so a lot of things are being published that are not rigorously peer-reviewed, they're not perfect clinical trials because there's an acknowledgement that we're in a pandemic and there's an extreme dearth of knowledge. Hmm. So anything that seems to add to the field is, is getting added. Hmm. What is the latest on various treatments like Plaquenil, azithromycin, and remdesivir? So the Plaquenil, azithromycin studies uh, initially were very promising. They look less promising now. Um, there were two studies that were published within the last week. One was from the VA, um, and the other was from a study in, in Brazil, and which was uh, published online but hasn't been published in a journal as yet. So the VA study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, um, compared outcomes for patients who received Plaquenil and or azithromycin um, versus those who received usual supportive care. And the Plaquenil azithromycin group seemed to do worse. Wow. Now, a couple caveats about that. Um, 
first is that they received uh, treatment when they're already on a ventilator. So nobody really oh, thinks that this is a, a cure-all drug latent disease. Second, of the people who got usual supportive care, about 30% of those patients received azithromycin at some point during their hospital course. So they're not truly a non-treatment group. So it's not a clean study, but it certainly blunts some of the enthusiasm that people have had for, for uh, this cocktail. In you know, Brazil, I, there was a study that was published where they used very high doses of hydroxychloroquine, and those patients had a worse outcome. And those are, pa those are at doses where no one is really suggesting that we give uh, hydroxychloroquine. So they had increased incidence of side effects, mostly cardiac. But again, it's hard to know what to make of that data. As we, as we have this part of the discussion, I, it occurs to me that uh, we're very accustomed to talking about a study or an article and criticizing it and maybe writing it off as, uh, as of irrelevance, you know, into the discussion. But I think what may be different now is our patients are hearing these discussions live. And they're, they're not accustomed to this idea that we say we don't know and evidence-based medicine doesn't mean that someone has written something on paper. Um, that's not necessarily evidence. But I, I think everyone's becoming sort of an amateur epidemiologist and, <laughs> uh, and, and journal editor because, you know, and we have to bring, I think, our listeners along to say evidence has to simmer a while and it, it has to go through some rigorous questioning and retesting before it kind of becomes the gospel of treatment. That's new for our patients. Right. And, and it requires a lot of prudence and a lot of weighing of risks. So if I have a patient with some comorbidities who is early on in their disease, and I have the ability to monitor them in the hospital for cardiac complications, am I, am I really going to be swayed to withhold hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin if I'm able to monitor them? Um, and I think that these drugs may and it may be extremely unlikely, but may blunt the severity of their disease. And that's, that's a conversation we have to be good about having with our patients and their families. Now, remdesivir uh, seems to be a little bit more promising. There was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which showed probably about 68% uh, treatment response wow. um, to huge. remdesivir, which seems like a really good uh, thing, and, and obviously more studies are needed. There have been criticisms of the study saying that, you know, these were patients who were younger, who were less ill, who had lower comorbidities, and, uh, and there are reports of a Chinese study, which is soon to be published, which basically says remdesivir doesn't provide a whole lot of benefit. And I haven't seen the data on that, and I'm not sure that that's publicly available yet. That's just made its way into the lay press. Um, there are other things that are, are um, gaining some attention. Again, convalescent plasma studies are ongoing. There are studies using mesenchymal, which are non-embryonic stem cells, to try and, and treat patients with advanced lung injury. And uh, at my institution, we hope to begin that study in conjunction with the other institutions next week. So Will you there be taking that from the patient's own fat or their bloodstream? It will, it, you know, so, so there is a, a national lab that houses um, these sort of pluripotent um, stem cells. So what we mean by pluripotent is that they're immature. They're not, they're not as immature as, So they example, won't be the patient's stem own stem cells then in this right, case? Right, right. Okay. Uh, so Eustace, you've seen the trajectory perhaps of this pandemic in your own hospital, in your uh, intensive care unit. How is that trajectory different now than over the last several weeks? Are you seeing more patients, less patients, sicker patients, better patients, less admissions? What's it look like? So I think the overall number seems to be trending downward. That being said, the severity of illness remains the same, and those patients require a lot of attention. We are all kind of um, saying lots of prayers as we prepare to enter into a world where we begin doing urgent and elective non-COVID related procedures again. So there are still people out there who need their heart catheterization or who need a bronchoscopy to find out if they need lung cancer or who need a upper endoscopy to see if they have a stomach ulcer. And we've been putting those off as we braced for this big peak 
this surge. And now we try and enter into this period of, uh, I don't want to call it normalcy, but we're dipping our toe in the pool of trying to get back to doing things that are necessary, but are non-COVID related. The corollary of that Go ahead. is that though our number of COVID patients in the hospital is going down, I, I believe we're seeing an increase in number of patients who are otherwise medically critically ill, who maybe sat at home for a day or two longer than they should have yes. because they were worried about COVID. Exactly. Because we're giving a message to, you know, stay home if, if you don't need to come in. So we're seeing some of those things play out um, with, with real medical illness and real medical consequences for the rest of many people's lives. Eustace, I'd like a chance for you to philosophize now. I sent you a link to an article whose title was The, Dur- the Dangerous Morality of the Open It Up Movement. It was a, a fascinating, but the, the fundamental thing is there seems to be this binary belief that it's either shut everything down to save, save lives or open everything up to save the economy. What do you think is wrong with that binary view of life? And how would you uh, apply what you know to opening things up safely? Wow. So I think the problem with those kinds of uh, binary approaches is that they deal in absolutes. And having seen the landscape of this for a little while and, and in no way being an expert is that a absolutist approach is just simply not going to work. The principles which I think need to guide us, and, and we're blessed as Catholics to have them, are these, these, uh, these ideas of, of solidarity, not just solidarity with uh, the worker, but also solidarity with uh, potentially vulnerable people. So this, uh, this idea of protectively isolating highly vulnerable patients while allowing the worker, the small business owner, to cautiously re-enter economic uh, uh, um, exercises so that they can maintain uh, a quality of life and basic uh, life for their uh, for themselves and for their loved ones. Those are those are principles that we have to continue to struggle with. This idea um, of absolutism doesn't allow for for that. It says you have to do it my way, uh, or all you care about is money, or you have to do it my way, or you want me to be on the bread lines. Well, we have to use prudential judgment, and again, um, that's one of our one of our primary virtues. It's, it's in some ways, the mother of all virtues, right? Um, where we, we have to take cautious steps that are rational in, and then look at the outcome and be really honest about what's actually happening. Acknowledge what's working, what's not working, and un- have a great deal of understanding that this isn't a, a perfect situation. Um, the idea that 5 million people uh, became unemployed last week is probably not something that is sustainable on any level. But at the same time, uh, as Catholics, I think we're called to say we are going to be judged by how we protect the most innocent or the most vulnerable uh, members of society, not just by how we take care of uh, the people who can, who can produce. So that's the real challenge for us. Um, and I, I wish I had um, good answers, um, but, I, but I, I don't. I don't think absolutism is the answer. I don't think the uh, hyper-partisan um, nature of discussions around this are, are very helpful either. Uh, in the United States, we have um, a blessing of having uh, 50 states that are, are sort of these micro-labs of how to do things. How they are doing things in Ohio is going to be different than how we do things in Indiana versus how things are done in California. And, and hopefully we use that as an opportunity to not savage each other, but to figure out best practices um, for very particular situations. I think uh, Georgia also is going to be helpful because I think they're opening up um, sooner than other states. And I yeah, think they, it'll be fascinating to see if they turn out to be like, like Sweden, for instance, where there uh, wasn't the harm that people thought about. And certainly something we've seen talking with <laughs> epidemiologists as guests is that while the disease, the physiology of this is universal, the way the disease behaves is not the same um, in New York as it is in Miami uh, or other areas. And so to have, you know, to use your expression, all of these micro labs, the solutions may be very different in community to community 
And in the midst of the pandemic, we don't seem to be good at thinking that, that way, whereas ordinarily <laughs> we would. Um, right. I mean, I think, you know, the, the Catholic principle of uh, subsidiarity, um, that these decisions are, are sometimes best made on the local level and, uh, and people who are better at defining what their community, what their small units of civilization need, um, might be the best way to approach this. Um, that being said, we also live in a, in a, uh, in a global economy. So it can't be, we're going to do what we do in our village forever, but we have to take the opportunity to make rational decisions, um, you know, for, and I think people generally will be accepting of those. So for example, um, a situation where you can buy lottery tickets and liquor, but you can't buy seeds to plant a garden, that doesn't really seem rational. Um, and you're going to see a strong emotional response to that. Whereas, um, a requirement where, you know, you don't uh, gather uh, with 20 people or more until we see what's going to happen, or I don't visit my mom and her assisted living um, because I'm a healthcare worker and I, I may be uh, bringing something into that assisted living area where I, I don't want to, that makes sense to me. And I think, I think people can be accepting of that. Um, so I think how we ex choose to make decisions, how we explain that, uh, to the people who, who are trying to be good citizens. I don't think there's malice on any side here. Um, I think that's going to be very important going forward. Well, I'm, uh, Tom, I don't know about you, but I'm struck with the fact that I wish a lot of our elected officials and policymakers had the wisdom uh, of Dr. Fernandez. Here, here. <laughs> we would be in a better place, I'm sure. Eustace, you know, what else would you like our listeners to know uh, about COVID from where you sit? I think what I would like them to know is that though we're through this peak of, of where we feared running out of ventilators and protective masks and things like that, this thing isn't going away. And as, as much as we'd like to return to normal life, no one can rationally um, expect that. So we have to know that this, um, this, uh, critter is here uh, with us to stay and we have to continue to be prudent. So we have to continue to um, uh, pray a lot. We have to wash our hands a lot. We have to keep our fingers out of our mouths a lot. We have to stay home if we're sick. And we have to understand um, that life is going to be a little bit different um, when it is all said and done. And to get to that life, we're going to have to take small steps, be forgiving of one another, um, and really think about uh, whether the decisions we're making make sense or not. Um, and uh, we have to pray for our leaders, our, uh, our political leaders, and also for our, our religious leaders. Um, you know, in our, in our Catholic faith, uh, returning to the sacraments um, right now would, would make a whole lot of people feel a whole lot better. But they have to, uh, as our shepherds, um, use prudential judgment and lead us there and, and really uh, need our prayers to make the best judgments they can. Um, so I think continued prayer, continued prudence, and continued hopefulness that there are some good things that are happening out there in the world of science, in the world of, uh, uh, of commun uh, community solidarity, in terms of new attention on most vulnerable members of our society. And so those are reasons to hope and, uh, and reasons to smile a little bit um, as we pray for this thing to, to resolve. Eustace, thanks so much for being back with us. I know our listeners love your uh, down-to-earth explanation of things and your great love for our Lord. Thank you for our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Uh, invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Or, of course, you can find us at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we'll be signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. 
Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.